Hello, and once again, we have art critic and author Elizabeth Fullerton hosting today's episode with guest artist Kate McGuire, who makes eye and imagination-boggling creature creations from bird feathers. Let's hear the discussion they shared. Hello, and a warm welcome to our guest, the wonderful Kate McGuire. How are you doing, Kate? I'm very well, thank you. To give you an introduction to Kate's practice, Kate creates magical sculptures and installations from feathers. In her hands, these soft plumes are transformed to resemble the texture of flaky ash or angry pustules or an exotic flower or scales of a snake. Her site-specific installations, often in historic buildings, conjure oozing slicks of oil or a carpet or a gushing liquid that threatens to engulf the space. Her sculptures are frequently described as otherworldly, with reason, as they suggest a halfway state between living and dead, sometimes contained and contorted within vitrines like caged, fabulous beasts, other times sprawling and encroaching. They inspire a visceral response, often a tug of war between seduction and repulsion, or even fear. Kate has one of the most intriguing studios I've ever visited. Being situated on a barge, the studio is home to an array of feathers, each carefully labelled and moth-proofed in hundreds of drawers. When I visited her, she was creating a colossal, intimidating work of black crow's feathers called gyre that looked like a giant witch's plait and seemed to swell and expand through the small space. Kate's book for today is Where the Crawdads Sing, an extraordinary first novel by the wildlife scientist Delia Owens. I'll give a quick summary of the book so we can get onto our discussion. Where the Crawdads Sing is set in the coastal marshlands of North Carolina and centers on Kaya Clark, known by the local villagers as the Marsh Girl. This is a story of appalling child neglect and abuse as Kaya is abandoned one by one by her family members and learns to fend for herself pretty much from six onward. Her one true friend, and really the other central character in the book, is the Marsh. Her passage into adulthood is entwined with a murder mystery. A popular local boy, Chase Andrews, who she went out with, is found dead, and the murder inquiry comes closer and closer to her door. So, Kate, knowing that you grew up in the Norfolk Broads and that Kaya loves birds, I can see many initial affinities with this book. Can you tell me a little bit more about why you chose it? Quite a few of my friends had said to me, you must read this book. And I think mainly it was because this girl, Kaya, collected feathers. And so I was rather reluctant because I thought I was going to be a bit twee. And then when I read it, actually, it was remarkable because it linked so much to my childhood, not in the sense of neglect so much, but the freedom I had as a child. I think possibly now, if parents let their children do as much as we did, they would probably be criticised of being neglectful. We would leave the house in the morning from a very early age and not come back till nighttime. And often on the water, often in boats, you know, we'd have situations, my brother and I, where the outboard motor would fall off the back of the boat miles from home. And we would have to dive in the mud and try and find this outboard motor to get it back and then row home and it would take hours and it would be dark. So the landscape and description of the marshland is so similar in many, many ways to my life on the Norfolk Broads. 
So that was the initial thing. There's so many parallels. Where Kaya's house is set in the book, it is only accessible by a tiny road or the water. And the Norfolk Broads are a natural phenomenon in the sense that they were marshland, but they were hand cut as peat cuttings and connected by waterways so that they could export the peat effectively. And that what's left is this beautiful array of lakes and rivers, but there's no road access to those lakes. There would be probably a border of, you know, maybe a quarter of a mile, half a mile between the water and a road. So when you're on the broad, you're completely surrounded by reeds and little dikes and rivers that will lead you away from the broad. But there's no way that people can look in. So you feel very quiet. There's a beautiful silence to it, apart from the water and the reeds and the birds. So it is a magical existence. And the book just led me straight back to that. Wow. There's also a real isolation and self-reliance, isn't there? Because Kaya, for instance, I'm really aware when Chase turns nasty, no lock on her door is going to help her. She can scream the house down. No one will hear. She's completely on her own. Yes, I really felt that too. But what was woven into that, her alarm procedure was the birds and their call being different. And they would alert her for any difference in the environment. And she learned to really read the songs and sounds of the birds so accurately. I'm definitely not technically knowledgeable about birds, but I know now the difference between the blackbird song and its alarm song. So you'll hear a bird nesting and it's calling to its partner, whatever. And then when it's protecting its nest, you can hear that the sound is so different. And the alarm signal, it's telling other birds that there's something there. It's warding off magpies maybe to stop it coming near. I was intrigued by her relying on the call of the birds being different that will alert her of people coming. Yeah, she's amazingly able to escape anytime she wants to, isn't she? She dodges away from the truancy officers who come to try to get her to go to school. She's able to dodge the police. She's able to escape from Chase when he comes after her. So she does really rely on, as you say, nature's patterns and calls and responses. It's incredible. I know from just walking around here, there are paths in the woodlands that are not human they are deer or badgers or foxes so they are very clearly marked but they're overgrown so they're tunnels and she will use those tunnels to escape yeah so she knows where where they all are and most humans wouldn't go through them yeah that's actually really true I also noticed that Kaya is very obsessive in her collecting of feathers in her understanding of nature and I wondered if you saw some kinship in that obsessive aspect because your works when you look at the sheer volume of feathers I remember reading I think it was one of your really early works Brood from 2004 used 23,000 wishbones is that correct so to be able to assemble that kind of monumental volume for a sculpture seems to me quite obsessive I wondered if you felt any parallels of course there are parallels I mean I suppose the difference I see is that I'm always working with birds that are common birds that overlooked probably as in the crow or magpie rather regarded as pests and I will be collecting a number of the same type of feather. What she has got on her wall and one of the gifts that was left to her by Tate was the eyebrow feather of a heron. You know that sort of thing is a unique feather on one bird so to find that naturally fallen is really 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 difficult and that's why the things that he has given her like the tropic bird tail feather. I mean, they are remarkable. I looked it up, actually. 
I didn't know what a tropic bird looked like, but it is, you know, quite a short, slightly stubby bird. And then it has got this remarkable, long, flowing tail. So as it flies, it sort of swoops around this tail, which is quite unusual because birds' tail feathers tend to be quite rigid. But it doesn't mention it in the book. When I was talking to a racing pigeon person about their birds, they were talking about the retrices are the wing feathers oh. and they call them the oarsmen, the flight feathers that will give it power. And the tail feathers are regarded as the helmsman, so the thing that steers. And of course, being so interested in boats my entire life, that seemed a rather remarkable parallel. And in the book, of course, they've got all these mentions of boats and they are so beautifully put and they are so correct. I love that sort of attention to detail of the boating words. Yes, it really brought it to life. I wondered if you had a passage that you might want to pick out from the book. Well, the passage that I've picked out really relates to the harshness of nature and her beginning to understand the brutality of nature. And I talk about that quite a lot in my own practice, really, because we think of nature as being this sort of bucolic, ideal landscape, this beautiful world. But actually, it really is quite brutal. So I'm going to read the passage that you talked about. Turkeys had been one of her favourites. She'd watched as many as 12 chicks tuck themselves under the mother's wings, even as the hen walked along, a few tumbling out of the back, then scrambling to catch up. But about a year ago, as Kaya strolled through a stand of pines, she'd heard a high-pitched shriek. A flock of 15 wild turkeys, mostly hens, a few toms and jake, rushed about, pecking what looked like an oily rag crumpled in the dirt. Dust stirred from their feet, and shrouded the woods, drifting up through the branches caught there. As Kaya had crept closer, she saw it was a hen turkey on the ground, and the birds of her own flock were pecking and toe-scratching her neck and head. Somehow she'd managed to get her wings so tangled with briars, her feathers stuck out at strange angles, and she could no longer fly. Jodie had said that if a bird becomes different from the others, disfigured or wounded, it is more likely to attract a predator, so the rest of the flock will kill it, which is better than drawing in an eagle, who might take one of them in the bargain. A large female clawed at the bedraggled hen with her large horny feet, then pinned her to the ground as another female jabbed at her naked neck and head. The hen squealed, looked around with wild eyes at her own flock assaulting her. That's pretty tough, isn't it? Yeah, really tough. The chapter then goes on to talk about her being in the shack by herself and the boys from the town coming to pick on her. They're talking about this ritual of who's going to go and see the marsh girl and are they going to dare to go to the, her house and sort of bang on her door and frighten her. And because she's on her own, she is easy pickings, really. So I just thought that sort of animal-human parallel was quite interesting. Yes, that group dynamic as well, the group and the individual. Yeah. The mob attacking an individual, I think, is quite interesting yes definitely what's really interesting also with the book she writes beautifully about nature anyway but she uses her descriptions of nature as a metaphor for human behavior and a passage I wanted to pick out that I thought was quite interesting was the passage on the fireflies it started with this really beautiful courtship that she and her real love Tate have where he leaves her these really rare feathers as you had mentioned and it's a way of getting to her because she's so desperately shy that only someone really dedicated and using nature in a really gentle way could hope to get to her heart. But then when he lets her down, she's waiting for him and notices this firefly dance. And it's really interesting. I'll read the passage out here. 
Dully, she watched fireflies scribbling across the night. She never collected lightning bugs in bottles. You learn a lot more about something when it's not in a jar. Jodie had taught her that the female firefly flickers the light under her tail to signal to the male that she's ready to mate. Each species of firefly has its own language of flashes. As Kaya watched, some females signed dot, 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 dash, flying a zigzag dance, while others flashed dash, dash dot in a different dance pattern. The males, of course, knew the signals of their species and flew only to those females. Suddenly, Kaya sat up and paid attention. One of the females had changed her code. First, she flashed the proper sequence of dashes and dots, attracting a male of her species, and they mated. Then she flickered a different signal, and a male of a different species flew to her. Reading her message, the second male was convinced he'd found a willing female of his own kind and hovered above her to mate. But suddenly, the female firefly reached up, grabbed him with her mouth, and ate him, chewing all six legs and both wings. Kaya watched others. The females got what they wanted, first a mate, then a meal, just by changing their signals. I really like that. Yeah, I really like that. But in a way, she's not in control, is she, at all during the book with regards to men? Yes, except, spoiler alert, Yes. at the end (laughs) she kind of gets her own yes so yeah so I think that that passage is put there partly because it's really interesting but also to give us a little clue that maybe at some point she will gain control herself yes exactly and how did you find the characters I mean obviously Kaya is the one who we're seeing the book through but was there any particular character that jumped out for you well, talking about jumped out, jumping, <laughs> jumping and Mabel, they were her only sort of trusted friends. I mean, the boys obviously had an agenda, whether that was love or promiscuity, they still had an agenda. Jumping and Mabel didn't. And they were just there and saw that she was on her own and read her really well and were able to help, but very gently and not crowd her out so that she felt confident to ask for help because she didn't know how to do that. She hadn't been brought up by anyone. She wasn't sure how to share things she didn't know how to behave she didn't know how to dress yeah she'd worked it all out herself that relationship I thought was really beautifully put and I like the fact that she defended jumping when he got attacked by the local boys she beat one of them up basically he becomes a father figure doesn't he yes exactly for me he was one of my favorite characters he's this very kind-hearted African-American man who runs a gas station I think on the waterfront and a basic convenience store and he pretty much with his wife Mabel saves her from starvation and destitution. Yes. I mean, she fishes and smokes fish and she produces these things almost inedible, but they take them so that she feels like she's earning her keep and able to earn some money. I mean, it is remarkable, stroke unbelievable that she could look after herself from age, well, her mother left at six, I think, and her father left when she was about eight or something. So that is difficult to believe, but I suppose it's possible. Yes. I don't know whether we are are expected to think that that's a bit of artistic license. But either way, she is remarkable and we really see how the marsh sustains her. And her companions, of course, are the birds and the way she makes food for herself, but she always makes food for the birds. Even though she has almost nothing, she's surviving on grits and she always makes enough for them. Yes. And, uh, you know, the description of her going to feed the girls and how they walk on her feet and swirl around her 
her so that she's almost invisible within this flock, I thought was rather beautifully put. Definitely, because when I think of seagulls, I'm thinking of them swooping down to grab my chips. I'm always a bit alarmed about seagulls because they seem a bit ferocious, but there she is at one with them. There's this sort of love affair going on. It's a real friendship, like you say. And she can identify individuals within the flock, which is quite interesting. I love the idea of being so in tune with nature that you can summon birds and your wishes. I've been swimming daily, actually pretty much for a year now in the river here. First time I've ever done it. And I love it. I'm completely hooked. There are three ducks, a female and two mallards, who now swim alongside me. (laughs) I swim down from my house to the lock, which is about 200 metres, and then back again. And they swim alongside me the whole way. I don't know what that's about, but it's quite fun. There is also a kingfisher along our stretch, and I often see him in the morning. And he flies so close to the river. It always makes me laugh. So I sort of feel I have an inner Kaya in me and that relationship with birds is very special for me. Wow. Are you swimming on the wayside rather than the Thames side? During the winter, I swim on the wayside of my house because the Thames is flowing too fast. And then yesterday was the first day that I swam round the other way and swam up the Thames. So I always swim against the flow of the river, and which is quite a hard swim. And then it will deliver me back home with the flow of the river. Kate, you are a superwoman. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And I was thought I wouldn't really like swimming in the winter, but it's very different. It's a bit like Kaya describes the landscape with the sort of trees covering the track so you can't see your way through. Here, all the trees are bare in the winter and they're leaning over the river slightly. It feels a bit like the bones of a cathedral. Lovely. Are you swimming in a wetsuit? No, I do wear gloves and boots. Wow. Yeah, no wetsuit. I am very impressed, Kate. I wish I had your hardiness. Well, I didn't think I'd be able to do it, but it it really has been a revelation this year. And I feel put out now if I don't do it. Very good for the breathing. You breathe in a slightly different way. It boosts your immunity, apparently, and your serotonin levels and that sort of thing. So yes, keeping me happy. And making new friends with the ducks. Yes, exactly. It's interesting that Kaya is also an artist and she is painting intricate watercolours of nature. But whereas she is seeking to replicate nature exactly, it seems to me that you're trying to transform and transcend our narrow understandings of it with your sculptures. She didn't have a camera. I wonder whether if she'd had a camera and she'd been able to record her findings in a different way, whether she would have painted in the same way. I mean, she was very keen on documenting the marsh, wasn't she? And knowing everything about the marsh. And so her interest is scientific as well as being artistic. Yes. I think with the advent of television and photography, we are also bombarded with images. We can see, you know, David Attenborough programmes about the most incredible beasts. So there's no need and no interest for me to replicate any of those things and so I want to take it a step further I want actually to get you to look again at crow feathers or mallard feathers in a way that by presenting them in a different way and showing you a different form it makes you question all the things that you think you know already well half the time you're probably subconsciously aware that they're feathers but you're thinking outside of birds aren't you yes and I'm trying to make hybrid creatures that are reptilian or they'll have the creases and curves 
curves of a human body, but they'll be in the shape of a serpent, maybe. So they are reminiscent of something that we know, and then they'll defy your logic by introducing a different material or being an incredible colour or have an exquisite pattern to them. Part of it is I'm trying to seduce you with its beauty, but also to try and get you to look at things in a different way. All about that sort of confusion and mix-up of not letting you get away with just thinking it's aesthetic. Yes, absolutely. You talked about confusion or conflict, and I wanted to ask you about your work, which has always fascinated and enthralled me and also alarmed me, that work called Sluice. You recently did an Instagram project inviting people from all walks of life to respond to your works, and I was honoured to be invited, and I chose that work, Sluice, which is elegant but terrifying, consisting of feathers gushing out of a pipe and seeping across the floor, threatening to flood and, who knows, eventually perhaps asphyxiate you. At least that's my reading. I got an extremely powerful gut response to that work, and I wondered if you could talk a bit about how it originated and where it's been shown. It's one of my favourite pieces, so I'm very pleased you've chosen that one. I was invited in 2008 to Breda in Holland to make a site-specific piece for their gallery. It was quite an untidy gallery space as such. They had what looked like a sewer pipe broken off and coming up through the floor. So that was my start point. I wasn't really sure whether it was going to erupt at any moment, you know, (laughs) anyway. So I took lots of measurements and came home and made my installation and then brought it back and installed it. So it was quite a lengthy process. One of the things about being on the river I'm constantly aware of, it might look completely benign on the surface, but you can see by eddies and ripples that there's an undertow. So for me, the river is something I'm very um, aware of at the danger of it. So it was something I wanted to show in that piece, really, that it, it is a devious and difficult medium. So this idea of this churning water that could drag you down was sort of part of that process and the flooding and consuming of the space was really important. What I thought was quite interesting with that piece that quite a few people said to me, the flood is going back into the pipe. And I never read it like that. I read it as if the flood is coming out of the pipe. Yes, isn't that interesting? I never did either. I always thought it was those feathers were going to come and just fill up the room all the way up, up, up until you you actually just are gasping. Yes, absolutely. Especially when I make site-specific installations, I make it in such a way that I alter it to be site-specific in wherever I show it. So that piece is shown in Berlin, Greece, Athens, Paris, London, Holland. And each place, obviously the architecture is different. So we've made a replica pipe so that can go anywhere. And then what I do is make it sort of go around the corner and out of a room and down onto a different level. So I can alter it each time. It's a really wonderfully flexible installation that can respond to the architecture of a space. Incredible. I'm sure it changes each time, but how many feathers roughly would go into a work like that? Oh, I would think above 10,000 feathers. And they all come from racing pigeon enthusiasts. I've been collecting for probably about 15 years now. And 
racing pigeon enthusiasts from all over the country send me their molted birds feathers so they molt in april and october naturally in the coop they can't race during that time because they haven't got enough feathers to support their flight over a distance and they just scoop them up and send them to me in self-addressed envelopes so i've got thousands all stored in a freezer and as long as they don't get moths and things like that you can reuse them time and time again they don't deteriorate I can't believe there are that many racing pigeons. I would think that there is at least 100 different societies all over the UK, probably more. There's the British Racing Pigeon Association, and I got in touch with them first of all, and then asked them for names of people that might be willing, who I could approach. And I probably got about 30 individuals to this day that still send me their feathers. They win a lot of money. I mean, it is generally older men that do it. And when I first started collecting 15 years ago, a lot of them didn't have email. So I was ringing them up, this mad woman from London going, could you send me your dirty old feathers? (laughs) You know, some of them thought I was so mad and didn't bother. And then other people did. And they were really generous. But otherwise, they just throw them away. So I'm using material that is precious to me, but not of value to them. And for sluice, that is made of pigeon feathers, right? That's pigeon feathers, yeah. Yeah. Which is so interesting also because it does have that kind of dirty crawling aspect to it as well. We associate pigeons with vermin, you know, we call them flying rats, right? So there is that creepy skin crawling aspect to it as well. Then the weirdest thing, this dichotomy, is that we regard pigeons as rats with wings and then doves as the symbol of peace and purity and love. It's just the albino version of the same bird. It's a ridiculous reputation we put on the bird. It's just crazy. Yeah, absolutely. But I do think that the fact you make sluice from pigeon feathers definitely adds to this duality that you have with it, the sort of attraction repulsion idea. But at other times, you're creating these very precise ethereal sculptural forms, like the one titled Somnol from 2019, where you have stunning white feathers arching into themselves, calling to mind for me a swan tucking its neck into its wing. And it feels like it might be breathing even. But then there are all these bizarre spiky elements from the quills that create a totally different texture and register that throw the viewer off. And I'm wondering how that came about. If you look at the colour of that piece, you've got the white feathers, which are dove, and then it slowly morphs into a different colour. So it goes into the gradation between dove and pigeon. And so you've got the so-called grottiness of the pigeon going into the centre of the thing, enveloped in those quills. And those quills are almost like spiky maggots. They've got a sort of nasty yellowness to them that sort of almost pure, but not, you know, anemic nature to that. And it sort of feels like the lining of a cow's stomach. It's got all sorts of animal elements to it. It also feels like it's moving, but it's quite static. It's spiky. And it's sort of consuming one part of the bird. It's a peculiar combination, that one. It's sort of eating itself. Yeah. And then there's that hardness of the quills and the really soft, soft delicacy of the curving white neck part. It's a massive contradictions, isn't it? 
Yes, absolutely. And I like playing on this notion of, you know, what we think of as being pure and what we think of as being disgusting and mash them together and create something that makes you think. Yes, absolutely. And then I also wanted to think about some of the disciplines that your work ranges across, because one of my favourite things about your work is that it does encompass a whole lot of other disciplines. So we talked a little bit about the architectural aspect with Sluice, but you've also had commissions from fashion houses such as Hermes and Helmut Lang. Your work was chosen for the cover of Margaret Atwood's recent book of poetry and the choreographer Akram Khan selected your work for an exhibition featuring dance performances at the Lowry in 2014. And then last year you had this wonderful show at Harewood House in Leeds and you created your magic with feathers again, turning them into a kind of mosaic-like carpet. I had the delight to be asked to do a solo show at Harewood House last year, and it was a year in the planning, and then COVID hit, of course, and that was another story. You know, walking around the house, it's incredibly ornate. The top designers of the day of that period had come to Harewood to do the decor. So you've got Robert Adam ceilings and floor design, and you've got Thomas Chippendale doing the furniture and the mirrors and lots of gilding and cherubs, and, and the wallpaper is bright yellow silk and quite a difficult room in a way but it is bathed in light and it looks out on the beautiful capability brown gardens so it was a challenge that I decided to go okay let's do something quite remarkable here it's probably the most joyous and elaborate piece I've ever made I decided to work with the idea of mirrors because the room is surrounded it is on every single wall in the space there is very ornate mirrors so I used the mirrors as a sort of kaleidoscope so I made a quarter of the design that I was trying to achieve which was to mimic the design that Robert Adam had put on the ceiling which is all based in nature and fronds of fern and curlicue acanthus leaves and that sort of thing and then the floor was also Robert Adam carpet which was taken up for restoration so I was really replacing the carpet that had been removed and so these two quadrants made up completely different complete squares of the design it's very difficult to explain without actually seeing it so you walked in the room and you will see one complete design echoed in the mirror and then as you walk across the room the design will change miraculously to another design each one seems to fill the room so it's quite a difficult thing to imagine but it worked they were very very ornate all made out of pheasant feathers the pheasant shoot on the Herwood estate doesn't happen anymore so this was a sort of celebration of the fact that they had decided to leave nature as it is and not go around having shooting parties which the house has had and many houses do have so it was a celebration of the countryside and the beauty of the pheasants and you've got a remarkable range of feathers of different types within one bird and it's terrible to think that they're bred for shooting they are magnificent creatures with absolutely beautiful ornate feathers and they are just frightened up into the air to be shot for moments of pleasure of passion for somebody with a gun which never ever can be right in my eyes all the pheasant feathers that I get are from shoots and I want to celebrate the fact that the birds are phenomenal I never dye anything it is the color that the birds are if anyone's interested please go and have a look at the images because they are astounding the range and detail and the iridescence of the feathers is quite incredible I was in a way trying to emulate the landscape in that piece. 
is a capability brown landscape and so his tradition was to do something quite wild and natural looking in the distance it's all manufactured they put a lake in and that sort of thing move quite a lot of earth at the time and then as it comes towards the house it becomes more and more formal and then you get the formal garden and the parterre and then the center of it is really exquisitely ornate with the room itself in a way the outer areas of my piece are very free form and like painterly and wild and it gets more and more complicated towards the center that was the theme behind it so you've put mirrors in a cross formation? It's in a T-shaped formation. In a T-shaped formation, okay, on the ground. So yes. you're seeing a reflection back of your feather carpet into yes. the mirrors that looks seamless. Yes. Yeah. And so mm. it gives it a sort of 3D quality, actually. Yeah, very much so. What was so weird about the piece in the end was, you know, taken months and months and months to make it and set it up. And you walked into the room and it felt like it had always been there. It felt so in tune with the room, but it felt completely at home. They must have been amazed. Yeah, I think they loved it, actually. Although, and I was saying about the COVID situation, we finished installing and it was meant to open on the 19th of March which was completely at the time where the lockdown happened and we had been installing in the house for a week my team of wonderful assistants and myself and as we'd been installing we were listening to the radio and there's all this terrible news and this thing had happened and it was like we kept on looking at each other going oh my god oh my god but we were in Harewood House we were living in the beautiful mansion we were being brought food every day we didn't go anywhere and by the end of it we emerged from the this surreal week to find England in lockdown. It was the weirdest thing. And so we travelled home, the roads were deserted. And then the exhibition didn't open for quite a long time. Luckily, they extended the dates of the exhibition. So it ended up closing in October rather than August. And we did manage, even with COVID restrictions, to get 25,000 visitors. So that was really exciting. Brilliant. What a crazy thing, though. How unsettling to emerge and suddenly find no one around and that life has completely changed. What artists have been influential in your practice? Well, mostly female artists, actually. I've got a list here. Mona Hatoum. I love the fact that she is constantly playing with our notions of what's real and scale and a visceral nature. I mean, she's done a lot of things with intestines and scrotum and showing us beauty in something that is not necessarily attractive. Helen Chadwick, of course, also made work with intestines. I've obviously got a bit of an infatuation there. Sort of crude and visceral and very emotional work, but also very beautiful. So the beauty of work is important to me, but also that it has a twist and that is more emotional than that alone. Belinda de Brookera, again, animal, violent, but beautiful. She manages to instill that sense of being within the work, but it is completely truncated and destroyed, but it retains that element of wholeness. Eva Hesse, again, just something that's gut-wrenchingly available to you. And Doris Salcedo using hair and elements of the body and remnants of humans and bones and skin and, and even bits of lace embedded in tables and that sort of element of human destroying tables and shoving them together and showing you that there's been a rupture and a discordant element there. 
all these are very corporeal, organic yes. kind of works that really have an emotional impact. Yeah, so I'm following in their footsteps, hopefully. <laughs> For sure. Brilliant. And what about books? Are there any that you're reading right now or have read recently and loved or podcasts you're listening to, TV series, music? Books wise, I really enjoyed Shuggy Bane. I think probably like the artists that I'm drawn to, there is always a darker, distressing. I mean, the Shuggy Bane story is a beginning of life, ageing just with such a lot of pain. Have you read it? No, I actually haven't. It is an absolutely remarkable book and how much love is in it. But in such distressing circumstances, he's brought up in Glasgow by his alcohol addicted mother, who is gorgeous to him and then lies and steals and lets him down on numerous occasions. And then she finally dies and he makes sure that she looks beautiful. He puts her teeth back in and puts lipstick on her and shows so much love for this person. There's always a darkness to the books that I like. A Thousand Splendid Sons by Khaled Hosseini. Again, you know, very dark. The friendship between women is so beautiful in it that it redeems itself in a way. And Bark Skins by Annie Prue. That's another, you know, based in nature, really beautifully written book about the logging history in North America and Canada. And just incredible, actually really beautifully written book. Mm. And also Tin Winton, The Shepherd's Hut. Again, coming of age book. Very sad, lots of anguish involved, but in nature and making do and treasuring actually the landscape around. Nature, darkness and resilience. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I was thinking about music. So I sing and I've been a member of various choirs over the years. And I've actually just recently stopped being in the choir because I think they wanted to go terribly jolly because of lockdown. And I don't really like jolly. (laughs) (laughs) I've got that for the moment, but for the last 25 years, I've been members of choirs and I love crunchy, discordant, dark music. So Benjamin Britten, one of the pieces I made was in response to Benjamin Britten's Peter Grimes. And it has this passage where it's really, really, really dark and brooding and low sort of horns and cello and stuff like that. And then it's almost like it changes immediately. And then there's the sun glinting on the window depicted by violins and piccolos. And it's really sort of glinting music. And then it changes to this darkness. So I really love that piece of music. There's a few pieces by Henry Purcell that I've sung in the past. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and Lord, how long will thou be angry? And they are really crunchingly discordant. I mean, they sound so contemporary, but they are incredibly old. And are you listening while you're working as well? Yes, I'm listening to orchestral music, mostly classical music. And then when I'm making a piece, once I finally sort of got to the point where I've got to work for hours on end doing a similar thing, I can listen to audiobooks and I've listened to a lot. I meant to ask you earlier, how long will you be working on a piece like Gyre or Sluice? How long typically do these take? There's so much work involved. Well, it's a sort of three-stage thing, really. I collect feathers for a period of time, so it might be years to get enough crow feathers to be able to make a piece on that sort of scale. Jaya was nine metres in diagonal, and it was almost four metres tall. Although I'm dyslexic, I'm quite good with maths, and so I can work out the surface area of a piece 
and work out exactly how many feathers I will need per square meter to cover that. And you know, if I haven't got enough, I need to change the design of the piece to fit what I've got because it'd be terrible to make a piece and then run out. So yes, I do do quite a lot of calculations. I have assistance for when I'm finally working on a big installation and it might take a couple of months to make a piece. We tend to work really intensely. My studio isn't that big, so we can only really work on one big piece at a time. So we've just got to get it done and out. Yeah. And also you don't want it hanging around and getting damaged. I made a mistake with Jaya because I made it and then couldn't fit part of it through my door. <laughs> so I don't know if you remember, but there's a large open area at the back of the barge. We had to make that piece outside. So we had to rig up a tent around the open area. It was in February. It was really cold so that we could work on it out there. I have never made that mistake again because, you know, your fingers don't work after a while if you're working outside. And also, like presumably, it. there's the risk of the elements. It had a cover on the top. It was just really the sides. And of course, feathers will fly away if it's too windy. Yes. Wow. What about films or TV series? We've all been watching way too much television in lockdown, or at least I have. Is there anything that you have been hooked on? I'm struggling with television at the moment. I just don't want to watch anything. I did enjoy It's a Sin. I thought that was amazing. Yeah. It was very joyous, but so sad. And I do like a good old dark, scary noir when they come along, but there's nothing I want to watch at the moment. What about exhibitions, residencies? What's coming up for you? And where can we see your work next? I know you've got an amazing monograph coming out very soon. The monograph is due to come out on the 8th of April and it covers most of my practice, to be honest, um, since college. And then my exhibition in Paris was meant to be now in April and that has been postponed for a year. So that'll be April 2022. And I'm making some new work with that in a big installation. So that's quite exciting. Actually, going to be quite a different emphasis, I think. So where in Paris? It's at a gallery called the Gallery des Filles du Calvaire, which is in the Marais. A really lovely new gallery that I've got there. And I'm going to be doing Art Paris with them in September, if that still goes ahead. During lockdown, I've made a series of very precise little pieces that all relate to the flow of water. They're made out of magpie feathers and they're tiny. So each feather is less than three centimetres long. And for me, they're a gradation of calm water to turbulent water. And so they are little jewels of windows onto a section of the river. And they'll be arranged together. I think there's going to be seven of them on the wall together. And there will be little vignettes, I suppose, of turbulence and calm. And the magpie feathers are iridescent. And they range between blues and turquoises. I'm completely obsessed by these pieces at the moment. They're very small, a little bit of a departure. And then I'm going to be making other pieces that will make a big installation. So will we get to see those small works that you're talking about before then or not till the Paris show? I don't want them to be dispersed because they make sense as a set of this sort of gradation of turbulence. So you probably won't see them until Paris. I guess we'll all have to get over to Paris next year. Good incentive. Well, listen, Kate, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you today and good luck preparing for the Paris show. Thank you so much. That's been lovely.
Thank you, listeners, and also thanks to guest artist Kate McGuire and today's host, Elizabeth Fullerton. I'll be back next episode with Mark Tanner Sculpture Award winner, Dean Kenning. Meanwhile, if you'd like to support the series, please subscribe and rate, both of which make it much easier for other listeners to find Art Fictions. And as always, you can get in touch with me via my Art Fictions 2020 Instagram or my website, gilliannipe.co.uk. Happy reading and happy exhibition seeing. Till next time. But don't go because I'm still here. I just wanted to say, um, I think you answered it brilliantly. I'm going to stop the recording, by the way, now. So She stood up on the first day and basically said, if you have problems finding your room, taking notes in lectures, losing your keys, you know, all these, this list of things, I thought, yeah. Absolutely. So I went to see her and and had a dyslexia test for the first time. And it was just such a weight off my mind, really. It was such a relief. So, yeah. This opened up so many possibilities for you once you had that diagnosis. Yes. And my actually proudest moment is that I ended up getting a distinction for my dissertation.